want to thank Daniel and Alyssa and David and the entire choir for bringing our hearts and affections and moving them to the Lord, which is the center of our worship today. And what a blessing it is to hear psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and how they help move the word from the mind to the heart, that we can apply it to life. Thank the Lord for the songs. Acts chapter 18 if you'll make your way there, our pickup for today will begin in verse 5. We are talking about the gospel to Corinth. And this is kind of part two. If you remember from last week's outline, we only were able to go through point number one, and that was designed that way. And today, hopefully, we'll see uh, the conclusion of Paul's ministry taking the gospel to Corinth. Chapter 18, we won't read 1 through 4. Let's begin in verse 5. Uh, the, pop, the proper posture, I suppose, for reading the Word is always to stand in its honor. So let's do that today. A little change. Let's stand and read, Thus saith the Lord. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood Be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them, prolonged discipleship. The Bible says in verse 12, But when Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it to yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of these. You may be seated. Achaia is the actual translation, not Acacia. Achaia, that's why I slowed down. You have to look at these words and make sure you get them right. Sometimes I just hit a browser and say, pronounce this biblically to me from the computer. And it does that. Do you all know that? You can learn all these words. So uh, we we traditionally hear words in church and we think, oh, that's what it says. No, sometimes, or how it is pronounced, sometimes we miss that. So as we approach this passage, one thing sticks into my mind from last week. And that was what was troubling the Apostle Paul. You know, there's great emphasis on this fear issue and that he's afraid 
And when you go to 1 Corinthians and you see the writings of the letters to the Corinthians, you'll note in chapter 2, verse 3, that he emphasizes that he comes to them in weakness and fear and in much trembling. I thought about that in preparation, and my mind raced back to Elijah on Mount Carmel. Have you ever read that story? And again, historio, historio, story, when I say that, I'm talking about the Word of God, the Bible, not fable or fiction. We're talking about the Scripture. And on, in that particular passage, which is found in 1 uh, Kings 18, we have an epic battle between the prophets of Baal and the Lord God of Israel, is really what's going on. And Elijah is on that mountain, and he goes through that tension for all that amount of time. And this was not a Wednesday night prayer meeting, by the way. When the prophets of Baal were before trying to call upon their God that did not exist, they would cut themselves. Uh, they were doing perverse sexual acts. Uh, it's, if you go into detail, or the background of, of 1 Corinthians 18, it would blow your mind what Elijah is enduring upon that mountain. And then we know the end of the story, don't we? The God of Israel spoke. From heaven and just licked up the fire around the altar of the Lord. But shortly after that incredible mountain peak experience, we know that Elijah did a nosedive and moving from that heart thumping tension of what took place on Mount Carmel, he moves out into the wilderness and hides from a woman. Smart man, right? When he hides from Jezebel and that nosedive calls him to reel and he's in a reeling reeling posture before the Lord. I think that we could say that there's a similar situation going on in Paul's life. We would not know what it's like to be beaten as many times as Paul was beaten and to suffer all that Paul had suffered. And he's, he doesn't even have time to heal up from his wounds. And now he's engaging the most sinful civilization that he had ever been to. He's going into Acre Corinth and uh, the word Corinthianize means, uh, is associated fully with sexual immorality and, and temple prostitution. And he's going down to this place. And I can almost tell you for sure, reading the text, you're thinking in your mind, Paul is pretty much ready to pack it up and get out of this city. It's easy to think about the pressure and the tension that he's in. So in the midst of his despondency today, we're going to see that the Lord Jesus Christ himself ministered to the Apostle Paul. Through a divine vision. And perhaps he's beginning to think, boy, this battle's tough. He is a human being, by the way. Right? He's thinking that in the place, in the position of unrelenting persistence of evil. That he, maybe he needs to quit. Maybe he needs to leave this particular city. I don't know if you've ever felt this before. When you are under the unrelenting presence of evil. And you sense the host of demonic troops that are seeking to defeat you. We feel almost like it's the final hour, and we're at our lowest. And that's when the Lord God of eternity begins to work in our hearts and begins to move us from a place of hopelessness to a place of hope. Tired saints can draw much hope from Paul's account when he's going into Corinth to visit this influential, highly influential, yet incredibly immoral city. When we concluded last week, we learned that Aquila and Priscilla had been raised up by the Lord to help Paul, right? Isn't it awesome when God sends some support? And the Lord knew the heart of Paul, correct? 
He knew what Paul had gone through. And he raises up Aquila and Priscilla. And we ended last week with a character sketch of what this dynamic couple would have looked like. But here's the main thing, folks. They were engaged in the work of the ministry. And in 1 through 4, that's what you see with Aquila and Priscilla. And you see this in Paul's life. And now, beginning in verse 5, uh, remember we talked about the fact that there's a good chance that Paul was somewhat bivocational. In verse 4, he's making those tents. And when he had opportunity, he was preaching the word in the synagogue. But that word occupied means a whole different scenario when you get to verse 5. This means that he is fully engaged in teaching the word all the time. And we know why that's probably the case. Because Timothy and Silas brought with them a love gift from the churches in Macedonia. Which Paul will reference many times in the word. And that love gift was probably money, right? And it freed Paul up to go full force into teaching. As a matter of fact, the imperfect tense in the Greek indicates that this was his pattern. That he was engaging in at all times. He was teaching the Word. He was dialoguing with those. And again, I think we should see a transition from somewhat of a uh, bivocational to full force into preaching the Word. So Paul, making tents, preaching as he could, and now he's giving full attention to the Word. So let's look in your outline. Here's what I want you to see today. Making this applicational. Here it is. We... As the body of Christ, need to trust the Lord's promise in the face of opposition as you evangelize the lost. That's exactly what's going on here. Opposition is going to mount. And Jesus Christ has given His promises to every one of us in this building. As a matter of fact, it began in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And I am with you always. And Paul is going to see that clearly. Uh, I like how the NLT reads here. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia... More than likely with financial support, Paul spent his full time preaching and testifying to the Jews, telling them that the Messiah you are looking for is Jesus. That's a good thought for thought translation. So Paul is not only going to the synagogue, but he's actually going in targeting central aspects of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So he's highly intentional at this point. He's going into the synagogues, and maybe before he was dialoguing and hitting the Jews with Old Testament fulfillment. But at this point, when he's totally occupied with the Word, he has a target audience. And he's going in, and his major emphasis is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And notice in verse 6, those who hear began to resist and blaspheme. doesn't take long for opposition to mount against Paul. Paul's message was about the crucified and risen Messiah. And can't you see a transition here from as long as he's dialoguing and arguing here and there about the, the uh, validity of the word, maybe he, he's welcome to the synagogue. But all of a sudden when you begin to, begin to press the point that our God has a name and his name is Jesus Christ, amen, then he begins to get in trouble. And so he's devoting, and opposition is devoted to the teaching and preaching of the Word, that Jesus is the Christ, and opposition is mounting. And it's organized, is it not? I think it could have been organized over the fact that Crispus is saved. That's a pretty big deal when the president of the synagogue comes to Jesus, right? And although you hear that later in the text, I'm sure the opposition was mounting with the fact that a ruler, uh, that is over the synagogue, has now 
become a believer, that spearheaded opposition. And once they hear and begin to listen to what Paul is actually saying, the fellow that used to be welcome to the synagogue is no longer welcome to the synagogue. And the Bible says they blaspheme, that's the word, and slander. So what does Paul do at this point? Interesting. Paul's response is in accordance with Jesus' teaching on in the Sermon of the Mount. And Jesus said, stop casting your pearls before the swine and stop giving what is holy to the dogs. And that's really what Paul's response is. Do you remember the word of the Lord when, when Jesus sends out the 72 in the word in Luke chapter 10? He sends out the 72 and of course they're going to re- return. But he tells them something as he sends them out. Don't turn, just listen. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And so we have this judgment reality where Paul is addressing those Jews in this day And he's thinking about what Jesus had commanded the 72 in many, many ways. And he's saying the gospel of peace has come to your city, but you've rejected the gospel of peace. Therefore, we are withdrawing and we're even shaking off the dust of your town, the unbelieving town. We're shaking off the dust as judgment upon you. Perhaps Paul thought that the dusting off of the sandals wasn't enough. Right? Because in this text it says he's dusting off his garments against them and of course the way the Jews were to the gospel maybe that's Paul's response but Paul again he does this in Acts 13 51 he shakes off the dust against them as a testimony so Paul at this time will give his message that everybody in that group would have understood y'all see it in the passage he says your blood be on your own heads y'all know this is directly from the Old Testament and what book Ezekiel Right? Ezekiel's a watchman. And in chapter 3 of Ezekiel and 33, the Lord says to Ezekiel, You take the message I've given to you to the people. You preach exactly what I tell you to preach. And here's what I'm telling you. You're a watchman. If you don't warn those people that judgment is coming, the blood will be upon your head. But once you warn them that judgment is coming, the blood will be upon their heads. So all of those Jews, when Paul was preaching that day, man, this would have made them upset. There's no doubt about that. Paul says to them, The blood be upon your own head. I've made known the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you have rejected it. Much like in the days of Ezekiel, I'm telling you now, if you don't repent and turn to God, judgment is coming. And I have to say that this morning to this crowd here at First Baptist Church. Right? I have to say that to all of us, because with that awesome understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ also comes with it the wrath of God and the judgment of God if you reject Jesus Christ as Lord. So, Paul had faithfully discharged what we might call a gospel duty. Done exactly what the king had told him to do. And now he says to them, shaking off the dust, your blood be upon your own heads. I've done my part. You know, I guess it's not easy. To know when the time comes to say something like Paul said. I mean, he's been ministering to the Jews for quite some time, correct? And I know he's in a location, like Corinth, that is highly uh, immoral. But he's also preaching the gospel to Jewish people who knew their Old Testament. Correct? 
They knew their Old Testament. Do you remember the Jews in Matthew's Gospel? When there's a similar understanding that the blood of Christ would be upon their heads. What do they say? Our blood be on us. And our children. And our children's children. My goodness. What a statement. The fact is when Paul said... Your blood be on your own heads. I think it probably would have incited a little bit of uh, animosity toward Paul. They probably would have been a little ticked off. But what happens next is really uh, the pronouncement that really ticks them off. And that's the fact that we're going to the Gentiles. Right? They certainly would not have liked this at all. This cut against the grain of their ethnic sense of superiority. That they themselves alone had Yahweh God of Israel. Even though they were not believing in Yahweh God of Israel in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, correct? So it cuts across the grain. If there's ever some button-pushing words, this is it. Jewish people, we're leaving you and we're taking the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul is off to minister to the Gentiles. This is an indictment against the Jews, but historically, uh, what an awesome thing for Gentiles. Kyle and Katie, don't you all agree? What an awesome thing for us. To know that the gospel is going to go to the nations. And Paul makes this statement that has incredible historical impact. Do you remember way back when the Macedonian call sends Paul instead of east, it sends him west? Folks, do you know how historically important that is for you and me? That the gospel didn't first go to Asia but came here. And then we, according to the leading of the Lord, begins to send missionaries east. But we need them now in the west. <coughs> right? There's no question about what God does and why He does it. Verses 7 and 8, what does Paul do? Isn't this awesome? He leaves the synagogue and he moves right next door. You think you have to draw the line ever so often when you belong to Jesus. Just clearly draw it right there in the sand. But he moves next door and according to our text, we have a convert who is a Gentile God-fearer. What's that mean? A proselyte would be one who believed and took circumcision as a Gentile coming into the Jewish faith, Judaism. But a God-fearer would be someone that believed in the God of Israel in head knowledge for sure, but just short of circumcision, right? So he's a God-fearer, and here is Crispus who comes to know the Lord. This salvation is utterly surprising. You know, it's really something, again, the gospel has gotten hold of the synagogue president, this is the dude everybody looked up to in the synagogue. And now he's bowed a knee and bowed his heart to Jesus Christ. And then the Bible adds this, not only Crispus, but his entire household, those who believed in Jesus Christ. This is not a warrant for household salvation and or baptism. What this means is that each one of his family members trusted Jesus and came to know him. And so that, there is his entire household. And then the Bible says many others believed and were baptized. What an awesome breakthrough. What a beachhead right in the middle of Sin City for the cause of Christ. And guess what happens? When people are saved, a church is birthed. And that's exactly what happens here. And here's the deal. This church was born out of the crucible of persecution. Today we think about church planting and we think about, well, let's go across the road over here in Ozark. And we're going to take Christian people over there. And, and begin a Christian work over in a community. And you've got all the support that's not the case in the Bible, right? They're in Sin City where nobody knows the Lord except the ones who are witnessing. 
at the time when it begins. And then there's this church that comes together here. Now you would think that the church would try to hide out because they're under persecution. Folks, they're next door to the synagogue. Yeah, just right next door. We could ask the question, are you going to attend church this morning? And not many people in the world really care if you come to First Baptist Church Ozark this morning. They're not getting bummed out about it. Now, we know that some, some awful things happen when people gather in our country to go to church nowadays. But as a general rule, uh, people are not getting all bent out. It's not national news that you came to church this morning. Right? But how could you hide if you had become a believer and or you were seeking to know what Paul was preaching and you, the Spirit of God was moving on you? then there's no way to hide here. The line is clearly drawn in the sand between going over to the synagogue and all your tradition versus going to the new house church over at Crispus's place. You're going to go over there with that nut, Paul, who's preaching Jesus? It's kind of risky. It costs something to be a disciple in the Word of God. And I want to remind you that it still costs to associate with Jesus as long as you wear your faith on your sleeves like you should, right? It costs something to identify with Him. Again, what, what would happen in our day if the lines were clearly drawn? What if it becomes risky to associate with Christ's people? Very easy to read this as a picture uh, and think about Paul with that big S on his chest. But the fact is, as you move to the picture, uh, text, you'll find out that Paul's not a superman after all, but he has fear and trembling. And I'm sure Paul felt this risk way down deep in his soul. To have this house church right beside a synagogue. And think about all that Paul has gone through. Almost without exception in Acts, when the term Lord is used, it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul, I believe that is the Lord Jesus Christ, almost without exception in the book of Acts, when Lord is used, it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we know that Paul acknowledges his weakness in 1 Corinthians 2-3. And again, Paul knew the stakes were getting higher and higher. And what does the Lord say to him? Again, let's read it. What an awesome passage. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. He says, do not be afraid. Now, is this not a biblical promise that we ought to think about? I mean, I remember that little precious promise books or something book like that. I think there were over 37,000 promises in the Word of God. That's a lot, isn't it? And God gives us His promises in His Word. They come to us in a resounding fashion in our hearts when we think about the promises of God. And he says, do not be afraid. I am with you. He also says, do not be afraid to speak. In other words, Paul, keep preaching Jesus. Keep preaching me and my name. Do not be silent. Ladies and gentlemen, it says, ever a day we can't afford to be silent is today. The church of the living God cannot afford to be silent. And again, the biggest thing we will always face as believers is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and the only way to heaven. Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will come to the Father 
except through me. That's called exclusivity or the exclusive way of salvation. There are not many ways, many roads, only one. And that's Jesus Christ. And so, don't be afraid, Paul, to speak in my name. Could it possibly be that Paul was thinking about packing it up? You have to know that if you have to know that the vision that comes to Paul was directly for that moment. We have to believe that, right? So what's going on in Paul's heart and mind? I think it was a direct application for where Paul was at that moment. And then the Lord tells him, you don't need to be afraid. I am with you. It was the divine presence of Jesus that was there to undergird the apostles' faith and his ministry. No, don't skip right over that. It was the divine presence of Jesus that undergirded everything that the Apostle Paul did. Now, couldn't you hear Jesus say, Hey, Paul, man, you got the equivalent, pretty much, of two PhDs in theology. I mean, you're the most well-equipped man that has ever walked on the face of the earth when it comes to preaching the gospel, other than Jesus himself, right? Couldn't we argue this? That nobody was ever trained like the Apostle Paul, and there's probably no theologian that has ever lived that was as prepared and equipped as the Apostle Paul. But he doesn't tell him to lean upon how well you are equipped. He doesn't tell him to lean upon his Ph.D. in theology. He tells him to lean upon the divine presence of the Lord Himself. Folks, it's not our self-confidence that we need. It's the divine presence of Jesus that we need. Then he says, no one will assault you or harm you. Do you think Paul knew anything about physical hostility? You think he knew anything about being in stocks and bound and, and beaten? You know the word is going to tell us he was beaten how many times? Not one, not two, not three. How many? Right? Five times. So he knows what it's like to be beaten. He knows what it's like at the end of Galatians. He says to the Galatian believers, I bear the marks and scars of Christ in my body. Folks, he knew what it was like. And as we often say his scars were his calling cards, right? Of who he was. No one likes to suffer, right folks? Anybody standing in line to be beaten for Jesus today? I mean, no one's standing in line for that. What's the reason that Paul should not be fearful? That he should go on speaking? The Bible tells us why Jesus says, I have many people in this city. Now, stop for a moment and think about this. Is Jesus saying we've got many believers in this city that are going to stand up and protect you? Folks, that's not the idea at all. It's the very same thing that Jesus says in John 10, 16. You need to see this, so make your way there. John 10, 16. Let's actually back up to verse 14 and get a running start. Chapter 10, verse 14. Here's what the Apostle Paul needed to hear from Jesus. Remember, this is a promise, folks. Are you all listening? That I am with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. Keep speaking. I have many people in this city. And listen to what Jesus said. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock 
and one shepherd. Isn't that awesome? What is Jesus saying? Paul, don't be, you know, really deep down he's saying this. Paul, you're invincible until I finish my purpose with you. Is that not what he's saying? You are absolutely invincible in Corinth. Now after that, I don't, you know, I don't know how far the promise is going to go. He's going to eventually die for the cause of Christ. But at this moment, he says to him, you're invincible. There's a purpose that I have in sin city. And I have people that I'm going to save and bring into my fold. So you leave the results up to the king and you carry the message that the king has given you as an ambassador. And you let God, you let Jesus Christ save those who will be saved. God does that, folks. Can y'all hear that? And I know there's a tension there because, because we're, we're human beings. And there's a tension there when we think about that. But that's a good word for all of us today. Hold that tension with the fact that Jesus has sheep to bring into his fold. And they will hear him and they will listen to him. Yet we're called by God, just like Paul was, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. How would you like to be Isaiah? What did God tell Isaiah? Isaiah, I'm about to give you a message to tell the people. And here's what I'm going to tell you. They're not going to listen. Not, not a single one of them. But go ahead and tell the message. And what does Isaiah do? He, did, he doesn't say, woe is me, Lord, send someone else. He said, oh, woe is me. I'm a sinful man. But at the end of Isaiah 6, he says, here am I, Lord, send me. I'm going to be obedient to the call of God no matter what. And the call of God for Paul was take the gospel, keep preaching, don't be silent. Why? Because Jesus said, I have many people in this city. Direct fulfillment of John chapter 10. By the way, the gospel will triumph, folks. Aren't you thankful for the triumphant power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Remember where we started last week? Paul said, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Not man's power, the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. To the Jew first, and now Paul says full force to the Gentiles who will hear. My gospel will triumph in the city of Corinth. Paul, you just do what I told you to do. Preach the word. Be faithful to do so. And again, by all means, don't forget Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Jesus gives that promise. All right, finally, be committed to long-term discipleship. In 18, 11 through 17, I'm not going to read it all again, but that's what happens. How long does Paul labor in Corinth? 18 months. He's there preaching the word. Can I show you uh, what the content of his preaching was? Folks, in discipleship, do we ever move away from the cross? Do we ever move away from the gospel? No, we don't. And listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. If you don't turn there, just listen. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Boy, this is good theology, isn't it? I mean, this is what Paul is doing for 18 months. He's coming to them with nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And he's preaching that. Verse 22, For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weaknesses of God, the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. This is good hope for all you FBCO people. For consider your, your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? That's what He comes to Him. He's preaching Christ and He's committed to this 18-month discipleship endeavor. And what is the central focus of his theology? It is on the the cross of Christ. We ought to be thankful. Because some of you look prestigious, but we really know you. And you're not. Right? Let's be honest. I mean, we look at ourselves and we think, oh, we're just that special and we're that great. Paul reminds us, not many of you were of noble birth. You're not special. But you got a special Lord. That saves sinners. You know, folks, we don't have to have a big show here at First Baptist to win hearts. Folks, we live in a day when people think that you got to have multimedia presentations and the greatest PowerPoint presentations in the world to try to move someone's heart. Let me tell you, if you move their heart that way, you're moving it according to man's wisdom. And according to 1 Corinthians, you can't save people through man's wisdom. What is it that moves the heart of man? It is the simplicity of the cross of Christ and the fact that He was crucified for sinners like me and you. That's what really moves the heart of people. The gospel. Folks, here's the thing. Paul had so much confidence in the fact that the message of the gospel and the cross of Christ could change sinners' lives. Do we have that same confidence today? I mean, How about your kinfolks and friends of yours? It's so often the case that we lose confidence and trust in God. And we just throw up our hands and say, well, this person will never be saved. Folks, God can save anybody, anywhere, anytime through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not man's wisdom, but the power of the gospel. In verse 12, Gallio is introduced. And we know a lot about Gallio from Roman history. His father was Seneca the elder. And his brother was Seneca the younger who was Nero's tutor. Gallio was known for an incredible legal mind. But he was also known to be very anti-Semitic. He didn't like the Jews at all. We know when Gallio was proconsul from 50 to 52 AD. And that really helps us date the book of Acts. Because we have so many historical writings, extra-biblical things about Gallio. But Gallio was the center of senator of a province in the Roman Empire. So his decision would have carried a lot of weight. It actually would have set a precedent for all other Roman colonies. So the Jews are staging their attack and Paul is getting ready to speak. And I'm paraphrasing, right? I'm trying to get done so we can land the plane, right? And Paul is ready. Think about this. 
The Lord Jesus spoke to him at night. Don't be afraid to speak. Can you imagine Paul that day before that proconsul? And he's really before what's called the Bema seat. B-E-M-B-E-M-A. And, oh, he's before the tribunal. Do y'all think you had to prod him to speak? I mean, he just met the Lord at midnight, right? He's getting ready to open his mouth. And before he can open his mouth, Gallio says, case over. Case dismissed. And here's why. I mean, you're just using a bunch of names, right? We know better than that. The name of Christos, the name of Jesus, uh, means so much, right? But he says you're using these names and you're using these uh, laws and these customs. And he just says, hey, you're out of here. And he kicks them out of the courtroom, for lack of a better way of saying it. He removes them. And he squashes the movement. And they gather all their, the brightest and their best, and they're putting him on trial. And God takes a pagan man who doesn't know Jesus to shut down the court. You know, God can do what he wants to, right? And here he is using Gallio, and he dismisses the case. There has been no crime committed or no serious villainy is the word. And so he actually forcibly removes them from the courtroom. And then the Bible tells us that Sosthenes was beaten right before the court. Now, they is very ambiguous. Who was it that beat Sosthenes? We have no idea. It's ambiguous. Was it the Jews that beat him? Or was it the Gentiles that hated the Jews that just picked out a Jew that was a synagogue president who had gotten saved, possibly, and beat him? We, we don't know for sure. But here's what I do know. 1 Corinthians 1.1 addresses Sosthenes. Is he the same one? Hmm, I seem to think so. So I think not one president of the synagogue got saved but yeah he's made the president after Christmas becomes a believer and now you got two of them that had come to faith in Jesus Christ isn't that amazing and more than likely it's the Jews who are beating Sosthenes because he was a Christ follower bottom line Jesus keeps his promises Paul keeps speaking keep preaching not only did I save Christmas but also save Sosthenes. God is good, folks, right? What do we learn about Paul's ministry in Corinth as he completes this work? You know this, the most unlikely places and people can be impacted by the gospel. Kyle, I don't think you'd be in India if that wasn't the case, right? The most unlikely places and people can be impacted by the gospel. If we said, what city in the world is the most unlikely place to be reached with the gospel, what would you say? Hey, we have to put Las Vegas up there, right? Los Angeles, New York. We would throw these names out there. Well, Corinth was filled with temple prostitutes. It was a city steeped in immorality and proud of it. Yet the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes a base operation right there, a beachhead among the most unlikely place. Now, how about people? I doubt that Paul went into the synagogue thinking that he was about to win the president of the synagogue to Jesus. But that's what happens. Most unlikely places, most unlikely people. And then Sosthenes. What else did we learn? Paul was intentional. Folks, do you understand you need to be intentional in sharing Jesus? All right, we're about to land the plane. Y'all listening? We need to be intentional. Paul was intentional in what he did. He didn't just say evangelism will happen. He was intentional in what he did. Here's another thing. He had some co-laborers. Solid co-laborers. 
We need support. Don't we need to support one another? In prayer and service to the king. Number four, Paul's confidence was not in his ability. His confidence was in the message of the cross. Our church, we don't need to forget that, folks. When you look around at all the other churches and they're doing all these things to draw the crowd, but they're drawing the crowd without giving the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, remember something. Our confidence cannot be in the wisdom of man. If we ever let our confidence be in the wisdom of man and not in the wisdom of the cross, then we're in big trouble. Can't do that. I'm encouraging you as your pastor to remember that our ability is not in the presentation or in the multimedia. Our confidence is in the message of the cross that saves sinners. It's folly to the world, but it's wisdom for those who are being saved. Paul trusted Christ's promises even though there was intense persecution. How many times do you think Paul remembered Jesus' words those 18 months in Corinth? How many times do you think he thought about Jesus' words as he began to preach and teach for 18 solid months? He remembered that most important thing. I am with you. So folks, be intentional. Identify people in your sphere of influence and begin to pray for those individuals. Don't be afraid to speak. The same Jesus that was with Paul is with us. Everybody in the church ought to say amen to that, right? The same Jesus that was with Paul is with us. The message of the cross is powerful. And no one is too difficult. No one is too hard for Jesus Christ to save. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Let's labor together. Let's partner together. Because the grace of God can change lives. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the ministry of the gospel going to Corinth. And God, thank you that it was written down. And then out of this ministry... In Corinth, Paul will write 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Lord, we learn so much from your word. God, help us. Lord, not just to hear the word this morning, but to be doers. Not just to hear a sermon and leave and say, well, that was nice, but don't think about it anymore. Help us, Father, to take your word with your spirit and apply it to life. God, help us to be intentional. Help us to be confident in the promises of the Lord. Jesus, you gave that promise to Paul. And you fulfilled that promise. You're the same Christ that we have today. The same Jesus that will fulfill the same promise. When we obey you, Lord God, and speak your word, we can have confidence in the promise of the Lord that you are with us. We thank you, Lord, for it. Father, in the invitation, would you embolden us to trust you. Lord, to pray for your wisdom, for your knowledge. Lord, for your spirit to work in us. And by all means, Father, if there's one that you are bringing into your fold this day, Father, would you do it? Only you can save. And you are mighty to save, Lord Jesus. Would you do this to please you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.